Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 3 of Proustian Paths, the podcast that takes you on a gentle walk through the text of a classic work of French literature, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. I am James Holden, and I am your tour guide for this literary journey. As your guide, I will be taking you through Proust's text, and offering you a view of all its key moments, so that if you're a first-time reader, you'll be able to see them from their best vantage points and experience their beauty. Or if you're already a dedicated Proustian, I'll be offering you a different perspective on the people and places you know. In this episode, we'll be covering the section of text from the beginning of Part 1, Chapter 2, to the line break on page 134 of the English translation published by Penguin, which is to say, the long passage from the end of the Madeline scene up to the beginning of the descriptions of the two ways. This is the passage dealing with life in Combray. As per usual, we'll begin by drawing ourselves a literary map to help orientate ourselves. We'll then mark onto this a number of geographical landmarks, as well as key plot points, ideas and themes, before finally heading out to take in the view. Before we start, if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider subscribing to it wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Also, it'd be great if you were able to leave a comment or review, and like the episode. It helps a lot. And with that said, let's brush off any cake crumbs left over from last time, and look towards the town of Combray as it materialises in front of us. The Literary Map In this section, we arrive in Combray. We begin in Aunt Leonie's rooms in the family house, into which the narrator enters. And as he does so, we enter into the daily life of the family in the town. From Leonie's windows, we watch as the world passes by. We see people going about their daily business, and hear Leonie's commentary on all the toings and froings. The rest of the family, meanwhile, go to Mass. We meet with Le Grandin, and are told about Leonie's friends. After lunch, the young narrator goes to read, an event that leads to the story of the narrator's meeting with his uncle Adolphe and a certain other individual in Paris. We learn about the family's afternoons. The narrator explains the changed routine for Saturdays, which leads to reminiscences about the walks they took in May. In the account of these walks, we are shown the composer Monsieur Vantoy's house. Then, in the recounting of a Sunday afternoon, we are told more about the engineer Le Grandin and about his snobbishness. This is highlighted with particular reference to Balbec, a seaside location whose scenery is now described to us for the first time. We are told of the family's plans for the young narrator to spend his holiday in that place. Literary Landmarks Let's mark onto this very hastily sketched map a number of points and places of interest. There are a number of locations here that will help shape our journey through this section of text. There's the church, which we are told doesn't so much exist in Combray, but, for newly arriving visitors like ourselves, is Combray. It represents the town, the narrator says on page 51. This structure becomes the central point in Combray, around which the rest of the town is organised. Then there's the family's own house, which has now grown out beyond the stage set of the Goodnight Kiss to become a full building. There's Uncle Adolphe's house in Paris. There's Monsieur Vontoy's house near Combray. And then, finally, there's Balbec, a place mentioned during the dreamlike beginning of the novel, but about which we then had no knowledge, something we covered in episode one. Here, we finally learn something of this place. 
it's clear from this partial list that our map of the Proustian landscape grows significantly during this section. A lot of the narrator's world has spilled out of his teacup. In addition, I'd like to mark a number of ideas onto this literary map to ensure that we pay attention to them as we progress along our way, both now and in future episodes. There's the way that Proust structures this section through the use of the day in the family house, and how bolted onto this, he uses Leonie's window as a way of showing us the daily life of the town. There are the discussions of reading, and there's the discussion of snobbishness. Much will be said about snobbery in this novel as we progress, and as the narrator himself progresses in society. There's also much to be said about snobbishness and the critical debates surrounding Proust himself, his own attitudes, and the critical reception of his work. We won't look upon this for long today, but it will be worth us noting this place in our journey for later. The Literary Critical View And so, clutching our newly drawn and marked map, we can at last head out on our journey through this section. We enter it and find ourselves, almost for the first time, in a recognisable place, stable, fixed, and bathed both in spring sunshine and in the light of warm remembrance. It feels in many ways that this is the beginning of the novel. It's certainly the first time that we have encountered anything like the beginning of a regular chronological narrative. We arrive in Combray. In fact, the section begins with a literal arrival in Combray, the family's arrival by train in the weeks before Easter. They're going to spend the summer months in the country, more specifically, at the house of their great-aunt, in which her daughter, Aunt Leonie, also lives. Combray looms large in the Proustian imagination, and in the imagination of its readers, largely because of this passage we're walking through today, and also the section we'll explore in the next episode. And yet, the narrator is quick to point out that the town is in fact nothing special. He declares, quote, To live in Combray was a little dreary. That's on page 51. Nevertheless, there is something magical about this dreary little town, if only for the narrator himself. He argues that the place appears to him, quote, more unreal even than the projections of the magic lantern. Again, page 51. Proust takes us inside the family house, and we meet Aunt Leonie. It's Leonie who, despite going nowhere herself, gives us access to the whole of Combray. She becomes our chief focaliser. It's through her eyes that we see the town as its inhabitants pass below her window. She watches the world go by, and as she does so, so do we. However, while she's fascinated by the lives that pass in front of her, seeing in them great dramas, the narrator is again at pains to point out that it's nothing special. They're the lives of a normal, small town. The narrator goes on to offer a detailed description of Combray's church. It's the first of many such passages in the search. The complexity of Proust's description is testament to his own interest in this topic, and especially his passion for the works of John Ruskin. In the first years of the 20th century, before beginning to write his great novel, Proust was very interested in Ruskin. In particular, he concerned himself with the British writer's works on architecture and reading. He even translated two of his texts into French, adding literary critical prefaces and hundreds of footnotes in the process. Proust also made his way through Ruskin's other works, including Seven Lamps of Architecture. 
Ruskin's influence is clearly there in the description of Combray's church. It will be felt again in the descriptions of churches in Baalbek and Paris, and in the later sections set in Venice, a city that Proust himself visited in what amounted to a Ruskinian pilgrimage. The framing device for this whole passage is the structure of the day. As we read on, time passes. Lunch comes and goes, and it's after lunch that the young narrator goes to read. This section, like the description of the church, harkens back to Proust's earlier work, and is clearly indebted to it. Specifically, it recalls the translator's preface to his version of Ruskin's Sesame and Lilies, a work that has been translated in English as either On Reading or Days of Reading. Here, Proust writes about the joys of reading as a child in a style that he would later transplant whole into the search. In the novel, the ideas are dealt with more briefly, but if you do enjoy this passage, then I would highly recommend that you take a look at that earlier text. The section on the narrator's after-dinner reading is the occasion for a side story regarding his uncle Adolf. The narrator explains how, in previous years, he would go up to read in his uncle Adolf's room, but says he was now no longer allowed to do that, following an incident in Paris, which he narrates for us. He recounts visiting his uncle on a different day to normal, and finding that he already had company. He is shown up and is met by his uncle and a woman that comes to be known as the Lady in Pink. This is a comical scene, from the young narrator's social awkwardness to that of his uncle, who can see the impropriety of the meeting. There's also the amusing familiarity of the woman herself. The narrator initially assumes this woman to be an actress, and is disappointed by her in this regard. Whilst he doubts she can really be an actress, he also doubts his other assumption about her. He declares, quote, I had trouble believing she was a courtesan, and I especially would not have believed her a stylish courtesan if I had not seen the carriage and pair, the pink dress, the pearl necklace. That's on page 79. The scene ends with the young narrator gallantly and somewhat preposterously kissing the lady on the hand, and with him declaring himself to be, quote, crazed with love for the lady in pink. Seeing no fault in what has happened, he tells his family all about the event, which leads to them cutting off contact with Uncle Adolf completely. This scene becomes a template for so many across the search an awkward encounter with someone in a compromising situation that could ruin their reputation. It anticipates the stories of Swan, the Baron, and even the narrator himself. The most significant thing here is the identity of the woman. This character, at this moment, seems to be a mere plot foil, an explanation for why the narrator's uncle is no longer in favour. Her assumed disreputability exposes the family to social risk, and also exposes the young narrator to what is felt to be an inappropriate influence. However, this story is no mere narrative dead end. We cannot know this yet, our journey along the Proustian paths has not led us so far, but I will tell you now that we will see this woman again. We will meet her as we make our way through Proust's text, although we won't realise for a long time that it's her at all. This is a classic Proustian trick. We meet two characters, at two points in the narrative, in different settings, and at different points in time, and we're eventually shown that they are in fact the same person seen from two perspectives. We've already had some experience of this in relation to Swan. The woman the narrator here identifies as the Lady in Pink is not the Lady in Pink for everyone, nor will she stay the Lady in Pink for the narrator. In fact, we'll meet her again very soon, in episode 5. 
This story is also not a narrative path that leads nowhere, in the sense that Proust uses it to establish some of the more mature themes of jealousy and social disgrace that will become important further down the line. Less darkly, the story also establishes the narrator's obsession with theatre, which will feature more heavily in the opening sections of the novel's second volume. So let's make a mental note of this passage, to be recalled when we reach that point in our path. As I've already suggested, the discussion of reading that follows this scene returns us to the sun-dappled terrain that Proust had previously set out in his preface to Ruskin. It leads, in turn, to a discussion of the narrator's favourite author at that time, a figure who will become, along with Elstir and Van Thuy, one of the three significant artistic influences in his life. This author is the fictional Burgotte, whose novels the young boy is then reading. His analysis of these books anticipates his analysis of the works of those other two artists, and also acts as a kind of metafictional commentary on Proust's own style, and also that of the authors to whom he was indebted, for example Anatole France. We discover on page 92 of the Penguin edition that the narrator learns of Burgot via his childhood friend Bloch. The narrator says on pages 95-6 to that the aspects of Burgot's texts that he noticed first were not those he would eventually come to prize. He was grabbed by the story first, but later came to understand the nature of Burgot's writing, his use of specific phrases, in which he believes he has found what he calls an entire philosophy. It's this style that he comes to recognise above all else. This is the beginning of a kind of Proustian aesthetics, one that will be developed as we progress. Suffice it to say here that the young boy's first responses to Burgot represent the beginning of a much larger engagement with art and creativity. The young narrator's responses to Bogot are inseparable from his feelings about Charles Swann and his daughter Gilbert. We are told that the narrator was once interrupted by Swann during his afternoon reading, and was informed that he knew Bogot personally. This is on page 99 if you want to return to this passage. Most shockingly, the narrator learns that Gilbert and Bogot are friends, and even go on visits together, a revelation that has the effect of adding a kind of magical mystery to Gilbert herself. It's through Swan that the narrator begins to obtain information about Bogot the man, as opposed to the author. There is in this sequence a trace of the origin of the search itself. The novel we now know as In Search of Lost Time began life not as a novel at all, but as a work of polemical literary criticism, aimed at dismantling the views published by the famous 19th century French critic Saint-Beuve. The drafts of that original version of the text have been published as Contre Saint-Beuve, and are interesting in all sorts of ways, not least for the ways that they present Proust's own perspective on the author function. The Bogot sequence in The Way by Swans recalls this in its depiction of the young narrator's obsession with Bogot the man and what his views must be. This is, so to speak, the Sambeuve perspective, as the critic, at least in Proust's characterization of him, judged the quality of an author's work by the qualities of the writer themselves. Proust, by contrast, viewed the written text as a distillation of a person's expression, freed from the accidents of the everyday. The last part of our journey through Proust's text today will show us the family's altered routine on Saturdays, and, more specifically, their afternoon walks to church in May. The recounting of this again becomes a structure on which to hang a number of anecdotes. The first concerns the composer Monsieur Vinteuil. This man, we learn on page 114, had been the piano teacher of the narrator's great-aunts, and had retired to an estate near Combray. We are told of his simultaneous pride 
and bashfulness when it comes to his compositions, as exemplified in the story of the family's visit to him in his home. On this occasion, we are told, he placed one of his compositions on the music stand to show it off, only to remove it in embarrassment when it was mentioned. This social awkwardness as regards his own work will mean that the people who know Monsieur Vantui will consistently be unaware of his work. We will see this again with Swan when we enter the standalone section of the novel. The musical score scene will also be directly paralleled in the coming pages, as we'll see next time. The final anecdote told in this passage concerns Le Grandin. It's one that reveals the extent of his snobbishness, and at the same time provides a clearer map of another part of the Proustian landscape, Balbec. The family tell Le Grandin that the narrator will be visiting Balbec, and ask whether he could be put in contact with Le Grandin's sister, Madame de Combremer, who lives nearby. Rather than admit that his sister lives there, the snob Le Grandin is, we are told, hugely and comically evasive. For us, the most significant aspect of this episode is learning about the family's plans for the narrator's visit. It's clear that Proust already had a clear sense of the entire Balbec sequence that we'll read in the second volume of The Search. To this end, Le Grandin's descriptions of the place are significant. They will form an important part of the narrator's conception of the place before his arrival there, one key point to note is his reference to Balbec as a place of rare flowers in bloom, so it will be for our adolescent narrator. We have now traversed the entirety of this section of text. We have covered the family's day from beginning to end, have been for walks, and have met many of Combray's inhabitants. And now, without quite realising it ourselves, like the narrator's family, we have reached the end of our stroll. We're at the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for joining me on this section of our walk along the Proustian paths. Please do get in contact with me via social media, just search for at Proustian Paths, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Also, please do leave a review or a comment, and visit the show's website, culturalwriter.co.uk slash proustian-paths.html. With that being said, let's get some well undressed. Next time we'll set out on another walk from Combray. We'll learn about the two ways that lead out of the town, Swan's Way and the Guermont Way. It will be the distinction between these two ways that will shape so much of the narrator's life and will structure his narrative moving forward. Mm-hmm.